Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to Momming Well Muslim, a podcast designed with the Muslim American parent in mind, addressing how to raise Muslim American kids born into a post 9 11 world. We will cover topics ranging from potty training to politics, and no topic is off limits. Along with our expert guests, we'll discuss what's new in the Muslim American diaspora or just what's new at our own kitchen tables. Join us, Zeba Hassan, Nuzma Jafri, who have a combined eight kids and 25 years of parenting experience, as well as just enough crazy between them while they pioneer this journey we call Momming Wall Muslim. Assalamualaikum. This is another episode of Mommy Well Muslim. This is Zeba Hassan, and I am here with Asma Udin, um, and she is a senior scholar at the Freedom Forum Institute in Washington, D.C., and a visiting scholar at Brigham Young University. She also holds non-residential fellowships at UCLA and Georgetown. And we are taking this live. We're actually at a cafe right now. But I have the, the blessing of being able to get to know her a little bit um, as we've been sitting here eating some lunch. Um, she has just written a new book called When Islam is Not a Religion. And she literally just got back from a flight from Chicago last night and is literally about to go somewhere else, I think tomorrow. So I was so lucky that we were able to like get her squeeze in an hour and a half of her time so I really appreciate you being here as well. Thank you so much. Well thank you for having me. So you've had quite the journey. Why did you start in the the realm of the legal field and fighting for people's religious freedom? Like and and by the way including conservative Christians because I know I was reading a little bit about you. you. You were involved in a couple of really amazing cases. So can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go into that type of law? Sure, and I, I, you know, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, people say they want to work uh, on something that they're passionate about, and this was really just my following my passion. And I think at some point it was, you know, I was ignoring that, and when I was even deciding like to go to law school, I kind of went to law school because it just seemed like a convenient option. By the way, going to one of the top tier law schools, University of Chicago, and also doing the law review there, while you're, which yes. by the way is a very, if you're not in the legal field, a very difficult thing to do. Right, it sort of sets you apart it as really one of the top achievers at the law school. Exactly. Um, so why did you choose the type of law you ultimately went into? Like, I know that your dad was a hafiz. I was reading about that, and he was very much into like Islam and religion and cultivating that. Did that have something to do with your passion for freedom of religion, for instance? It did. I mean, it had to do with my passion for religion generally, and then Islam specifically. Um, I was always just sort of pulled to that, and almost in sort of an unconscious way. And so, you know, I talk about this mistaken uh, third major um, in, in college that I sort of stumbled into because I took too many classes in religious For religion, that's yeah. so funny. Yeah, and it wasn't like I intended to have that major, but I was like, oh, whoops, look, I satisfied all the requirements. That's so great. Um, and then, you know, going from there to law school, it happened again, where it was like, of all the classes, the one on the religion clauses of, you, of the First Amendment, were the most interesting to me, and so when I was writing for the Law Review, I was, I ended up writing a piece that dealt with um, religious freedom questions, specifically the teaching of evolution in public schools, um, and then when I went to, went on to corporate law, um, which was sort of like the, the automatic thing, thing that a lot of people do, yeah. you're like, hey, you'd have to pay for that law school somehow. Right, so, <laughs> and it's, it's just like it's shiny and glamorous, exactly. and so you go, and, um, 
you know, even as I was becoming disillusioned with the, with the rest of the work, the part that was really compelling for me was the pro bono work I was doing for, a, at that time, I was working in Philadelphia, so it was a Muslim policewoman who wanted to wear a headscarf. Interesting. I think I remember that case. the police department would have let her. But what was interesting to me, at the point at which I was like, I'm ready to move past the corporate world, and I need to find the area of nonprofit law that speaks to me, it just was immediately apparent to me that religion was always the, the con- sort of abiding passion, right? Right. Uh, and then it was just really the question of like, well, where do I do this as like a legal exactly. thing? Exactly. Right? How do I make a living out of this? Like, so is that what brought you to DC? It ultimately? was. Yeah, okay. it was uh, just in searching for opportunities, finding that the one place uh, in the country that did it on behalf of people of every religion, um, and did it as you know, thinking of religion as a public good as, and something that should have a space in the public area. Regardless um, of what religion that ex- is, exactly. just as an FYI. Exactly, as opposed to kind of sequestering religion in, in private, um, which a lot of groups do that too, right? They'll fight all these like, public manifestations of religion. And so I had grown up with a very, in a very deeply religious framework, with a very deeply religious father, and I always, and who and was your connection motivated. to your dad seems to be something that has gotten you into this line of field. Like it, right. It, it's like your, your connection with him really is what kind of drove Absolutely. you a little bit. I mean... It was also because he very much embodied that idea of religion as a source of public blood. Okay. Right. Could so, you expand, like, could you explain to us what that means? Well, because... Growing up in is, Miami. Yeah, I mean, growing up in Miami and having a father who uh, was a civil engineer, and he migrated down from, from Pittsburgh to Miami, uh, you know, after graduate school, um, because at the time, South Florida was... In the building, yeah, yeah. It was a and building. so he saw opportunity, and so he goes, and so now, if you look at Miami... You know, my father passed away 13 years ago, but well before he left, he had already sort of put, put his, his stamp. That's all so over. funny, like a physical stamp. Yeah, that's so amazing. I that mean, you the could airport, do that. the seaport, the public schools. But it wasn't just that; it was also the way that he developed the Muslim community there and okay. the mosques, right? So if he's going to construct Miami, he's going to have to add a couple mosques, right? And you're build, literally building. Your you're literally, from literally building this piece of the United States. That's um, amazing. And and within it, the also building. You know, this community that's trying to find its foothold, right? right? And so, and he was motivated in all of that, not just in that building, but also in all the philanthropy he did, which was very, very extensive and very detail-oriented. It wasn't just like, give it money and be done. It was like, get in the weeds, fill out the immigration forms for the people who are seeking help with immigration, you know? And it was just very, very detailed and personal in that way. So he lived Islam in the purest way, meaning it's not necessarily a religion, but a way of life. Right. And so in deciding in this religious liberty landscape how to side with the question of religion, religion is something that should be shut out of the public space versus religion that needs to be have a wide and sort of robust space in the public arena. Like that experience is exactly what kind of fueled my position on that. I'm like, right. no, religion is a source of amazing public good. Not just my father. If you look at the Catholic community and like the, the churches and the hospitals, I mean, not just the churches, but the hospitals and the universities, um, that they run. I mean, the Seventh Day Adventists have right. an extensive healthcare network. And the basis of service, right? Yeah. That all these religions have in common. I happen to be at your book signing here in the Washington, D.C., and I, I was joking with another friend, a mutual friend of ours, that we, there was a guy, you probably know who this guy was, he was in the front row, and he was essentially asleep through 90% of your presentation. But then the question, he was like, what, what is your position on Sharia law. Like, I feel like he was literally there just to ask you that question. Do you get that a lot? And how do you respond to somebody that literally was sitting in the front (laughs) while sleeping until until the question time? Right. Although, I think 
I'm not sure if he was sleeping because even at the mic, it looked like he was sleeping. Like, <laughs> so maybe that was it. Was. <laughs> that was a, I'm like, is he sleeping? And then he's going to ask this question. But I'm pretty sure because you're in that realm, yeah. you probably get that question a lot. Yeah, and How it was do funny you respond because to he was talking about Sharia, but he said Shia. Exactly. So it was just like, it was just kind of, but I mean, yeah, I did, um, I do get those type of questions. Right. And I think that when I was doing religious freedom broadly, and I still am, but before this book, I didn't put myself out there as like, now I'm going to talk about right. Islam specifically. You know, I think I could skirt a lot of those things. And I understand writing this book has kind right. of put me in a position where you're not going to be I'm right in the middle yeah, of it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think what gives my work, I guess, a leg up in this regard is that I'm not, ta I'm talking about freedoms under the Constitution. And so a lot of other people who do anti-Islamophobia work are trying to explain why people shouldn't fear Islam right. and why they shouldn't maybe well, you're like, like that's it. That's not what I. You, that's yeah, not or I'm just like, that's cool. We can talk about that a little right. bit. At the end of the day, it's sort of irrelevant. Right. But the point is that you, you under can, the Constitution, you don't have to like us in order to extend rights to us. Exactly. Right. And so we're just talking about rights. Um, and, and interestingly, with that particular gentleman, I did have data on hand to kind of go against his, his assumption. Right. Which is his idea that because of Sharia, um, Muslims themselves are not going to be able to extend freedom to other um, other believers. And I get almost like, well, actually, if you look at the sort of you know, spectrum of Muslim-majority states, there is research that the significant percentage of them are religiously free. Uh, another significant percentage is uh, oppressive, not because they're trying to like give Islam a, um, a leg up, but actually just because they're a hardcore secularist, right? Right. Of the Ataturk's, you know, Turkish society. Um, and how he sort of enforced a particular secularism right. and, he, and was inspired by the French model. Right. So these various Muslim states who are doing that, they're not doing it because of their, their Muslimness, they're doing it because they're, they're trying desires. to do the exact opposite. Exactly, exactly. And so they're trying to, uh, they're, they're more so mimicking a, a French model. Right. Um, and so he accepted it and sat down. Um, and, but I but just I, thought it was so funny. I was like, was he planted here just to ask that question? Because I do feel like when you now are going to become a public face of Islam on some level, right? Like that's a huge responsibility. I'm sure you probably already know that. If not, you're probably feeling that right now. What do you think is a question that you're getting a lot of or you are perceiving that is going to come your way now that you're going to be a face of a Muslim woman right. in America right now? One of them is going to be why should we extend... Um, freedom to, to Muslims because if they're allowed to practice Islam in a more robust way, um, they're going to essentially take over our values and take yeah. over America. Right. right? They're going to oppress women. We're going to put the jobs on everybody. Yeah. Not even just the jobs. They'll <laughs> be burkalized. They'll be straight yeah. up face, face bills. <laughs> the bails um, on. Yes. Yeah. And there's going to be just a total terrorist takeover. I mean, that's how these Which I do are. think that the people are really genuinely afraid They of. genuinely believe that. It's not just a talking point. Yeah, exactly. I think they're genuinely yeah. afraid. They're going to go and put the burqas on us. And yeah. We're gonna go, you know, and I just feel like it's <laughs> totally unfounded. So you feel like that's definitely a question. That oh, yeah. And it, it is a question that I've already gotten so many times. And then another one is going to be, well, why should we extend rights to Muslims when in Muslim-majority states they don't extend rights to non-Muslims, right? And so, okay, again, they're treating all Muslim-majority states as the same, right. and they're not distinguishing the various sort of, comp distinguishing among the states, but also in the places where it is um, repressive in this way, like, what are, the, you know, what are the, some of the facts? Right. Like, is it the government's, and then they have, like, wide public support for that? You know, what, no, they don't. Um, and various other factors. And so I think 
you know, to some extent, of course, I, I'm not one of those people who's going to be like, well, you ask me a question, and, and unless it's like a sort of a short radio interview, right. where I only have well, you a need sound time. Yeah, yeah, but everywhere else, I'm just like, yeah, I'll engage with you. I'll understand where you're coming from, and I do understand where you're coming from. And so, to some extent, I'm willing to kind of meet you where you are. Right. But I'm also going to provide you facts, and I need you to be open and receptive. To and, yeah. and receptive to it. And, and whether was, you agree or, agree or not. You know, I appreciate people who ask questions because right. at least they're asking. Right. You do have an amazing website called Alt Muslima, which is literally a forum for other Muslim American women. Right. And they have exchange ideas, and there's a lot of things. So you definitely are uh, somebody that's been a pioneer in that that world as well. So you do probably get asked to speak a lot about Muslim American Muslim women. Right. But it, whether it be you know um, gender issues or whether it be um, and by gender issues I'm talking specifically about women's rights issues in, in Islam um, specifically. Right, in Islam. Yeah. Um, but but it's funny because I'll be sitting on these very public stages clearly not somebody who's an oppressed woman right. um, being asked questions like well doesn't Islam oppress women? I'm just like you're asking a Muslim woman that yeah. question, and it's just and like I'm up here as why, a yeah, the why panel. isn't this <laughs> so like this cooking is not, for you? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so this this gentleman who's emailing me, you know, I sent him one of the texts that was really um, impactful on my life, which is Khalid Abu Fadl's speaking God's name, which is on Islamic law and women, right? right? And it's incredible if you read it, right? right? But instead of again, once again, somebody tells himself as a Princeton grad, you know, it was like. One of the reviews on there said that, oh, Halabukhalo's work has been tremendous in terms of overturning centuries of, like, misogynistic tradition or whatever. And he was like, that, sh- that says enough to me. Right. It doesn't say enough, but there's... I'm like, that is one person's yeah. description of it. Right. Like, if you truly want to engage in an honest conversation, you right. need to go and actually read the source that I'm pointing you to instead of some random Goodreads review. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. So speaking of Goodreads reviews, your reviews for your new book, When Islam is Not a Religion, like I've been reading them and they're just literally amazing. So there was one that stood out for me that I just wanted to read to you. Um, you probably have already read this, or maybe you're one of those that are like, I do not want to read these at all. <laughs> but the one that I saw, where is it? It was essentially somebody saying that it's a must it says, Asma Uddin, the permanent, the permanent defender of religious freedom for American Muslims, has for years been patiently explaining why her faith is no threat to non-Muslims. When Islam is not a religion is an eloquent plea for tolerance, weaving astute legal analysis with a compelling personal story. Prejudice cannot survive her testimony. I thought that was pretty amazing, and I do know you weave a little bit of your personal story mm-hmm. in here. So can I ask you, why did you pick this title when Islam is not a religion. So I was very much like A addressing this very explicit claim that Islam is not a religion and therefore Muslims don't get religious freedom. Um, but also that that explicit claim ties into a much broader set of discourse that basically sets Islam and Muslims out as something different than other religious communities and other religions. Right? And then that leads to a whole other range of violations under religious freedom but also just our humanity generally. And so that was, you know, I think it kind of captures, again, like the very explicit claim, but also the broader, much broader set of assumptions um, that go into really the negotiation of our rights and our humanity right now. So, so, because when I was listening to you speak at another venue, you were essentially saying that people cannot, people choose to view Islam not as a religion. Right. So it's like the idea is... It's more as a political ideology, and so as a result of that, they don't get... 
the freedom or the rights under the freedom of religion right exactly. sector. So that's kind of why you pick yes, this particular absolutely. title. Um, and so again, that we see that in the very explicit form of Islam is not a religion and it's a, dang, you know, it's a dangerous political ideology, which has been made in court. Um, it happens in a lot of out, you know protests out, that might be happening right. outside of a legal uh, venue, but is absolutely informing the arguments being made in court. Um, this driving policy and various types of legislation that I talk about. Um, but then, you know, I, I also take the book later on in the narrative to other ways where Islam is becoming um, basically secularized or politicized, um, and it's really kind of challenging um, Muslim sort of religious experience, um, religious exercise, and religious identity in this country. So, my question to you, how has Imam shaped your work, or has it not? couple of different ways. I mean, I think you really begin to, as much as I, I like to live in sort of this intellectual world. Right. Um, the practical application is yeah, with your Yeah, the practical babies. application, right. and, and not even just in the practical application in terms of your clients or other people you know are kind of living through these different um, scenarios, but you, it really kind of brings it home when you see your kids. They don't have the same framework, and they have to deal with this on just like the most simplest levels in, in the terms of their, you know, the world they're growing up in and the types of... Um, Bullying that they may or may not face. I mean, I, right. I do know that 42% of um, uh, parents of Muslim kids have reported bullying in public right. school. And, so and, and I feel thing. like I just read a statistic that it's gone up like 200% or something like that. It was like a ridiculous yeah. amount of percentage. I mean, this is Trump a significant. Right. I mean, what, that's the unwritten thing that the elephant in the room that we're talking about since he's taken office. I feel like it's almost socially acceptable right. almost on some level right. to be able to do that. Yeah, they call it the Trump effect. Is right. that really what like it is? Okay, yeah. yeah. So sort of like that's just my own personal <laughs> bias, I'm not gonna lie, but I didn't realize it was actually called the Trump yeah. effect. So, you know, I mean he's essentially sort of is the bully in the White House right. and in that way justifies the very sort of tone and style and aggression that comes with bullying, right? And says that this is okay because it's almost as if you're serving your country, right? right. By by engaging in these tactics. And so, um, so how do you feel about obviously current events right now? What's just happened with the four women in mm -hmm. Congress with the Omar Alon and all of that? Like, how how do you feel personally about that? I obviously think it's just completely inappropriate action by our president. I think I'm sort of just been following the way that the different because we've become an increasingly polarized society, right? And it's just even incredible. within the Muslim community. Yeah, by even the within way. the Muslim community. So I'm more interested in looking at the fault lines upon which these different sides are being taken. One of them is like this idea of defensive country, right? And why is anybody complaining and questioning right. it in a way that, that that people feel is denigrating? And another side being like, we do have to take America to task, you know, because America does have this history of uh, racism and just injustices against marginalized minorities. And you know, and anybody who keeps bringing that to light is somebody that we're going to champion. Right. And so I think I'm more interested in like what those fault lines are than like the specifically the latest controversy of the day. Okay, right? got it. Because that's sort of the abiding. That's looking at it for at a more holistic. It's holistic, and it's also yeah. just kind of like the thing. That's the theme around which each of these short-term controversies are, you know, centered around. Right. Right. Um, and so that's actually you know, part of the work that I'm going to be doing sort of moving forward after this book, um, and specifically looking at the ways that Muslims are sort of becoming representatives of a particular side of that, that fracture, right? Because it is the case that most public Muslims, if they are going to be identified with one side or the other, they're going to be a side 
assigned to the part where it's about marginalized minorities and about being anti-America. Right. And how are conservatives, which tend to be the ones who champion America, American Constitution, American yes. values, how are they perceiving the consistent sort of Muslim identification with the other side? That's interesting. So the one thing I know you talk a lot about, there's your personal story weaved within this mm -hmm. book, and we talked about it a little bit before we started recording. Um, you wore hijab for seven years, and your almost like internal struggle, struggle as to why you do not wear it now. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about it with our audience today? As like, how did that shape who you are, mm -hmm. um, and what was your decision as to why you stopped wearing hijab? Yeah, and I think in many ways, I mean, I I do talk about it a little bit in because the book. it is a personal choice. It is, yeah. it is, um, and definitely in America, yes. where we have the freedom to decide uh, one way or the other. Um, and so when talking about this idea of when Islam is not a religion, the thing that I explore later on in the book is this, I, uh, the distinction between Muslimness versus Islam. Okay. And I think Muslimness has become very much a politicized identity. Interesting. And I, and I think as a young person struggling with the hijab, like soon after I graduated from law school, I think I understood that even if I didn't have those terms, okay. and even if we were not as in stark of a position as we are now, right. where I was just felt that the hijab kind of forced a sort of political identity onto me, and like a Muslimness. It was it was more about Muslimness than it right. was about Islam. Then you were ready to take on at that time. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, it was partly ready to take on, but also because I felt like, in some ways, if you're too stuck in the Muslim, the performance of Muslimness, right. then you actually begin to lose your Islam, yes. and it can actually become a hindrance in your path to God. Okay. And I was just like, well, that's just pointless. Like, right. I'm not, the political stuff is interesting, but I'm not interested to the point where it's going to sabotage my relationship and my journey towards God. Your own internal relationship with God. Yeah, and just sort of my ability to be spiritually, you know, aware and, like, engaged in what I think is sort of like a really authentic, Islamic way of being, right? So, so is that because when you wear a hijab, you're very visually a Muslim woman? Yeah. So that comes with its own set of responsibilities yeah, and expectations. Yeah, you basically become a spokesperson, yeah. right? So back then, the question was, you know, post 9-11, the war in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, Taliban flogging women in burqas, and all of a sudden it was just like, you had to be a spokesperson for every crazy thing happening anywhere exactly. by a person who was Muslim or specifically in relation to women who were, they had, you know, were wearing the hijab or the burqa. And it was just like, well, why do I have to take that, you know, you that, that burden onto my shoulder? Right. Um, and then, and so, and I think that increasingly now, it's, it's sort of become, it's a, become a political symbol, right? And so a lot of people are arguably taking it on, not so much as... Uh, as their connection to God. Right, but more as so... More of a, as a political... Practically as a symbol yeah. of resistance to Trump. I right. mean, it's no mistake that in the Women's March, right. one of the most prominent, both um, one of the co-organizers, but also one of the prominent posters was a woman in hijab. Right. right. And I think that that's, there's a lot of symbolism there about resistance. Um, and so... It's important to like to be able to differentiate that for right. sure, right? And and understand that it's not just about differentiating, but that one engaging in the political performance can, in very ways, be deleterious to your spiritual experience. And I think I'm just more interested in preserving the latter. your spir their spirituality. Right. right. And what does being unapologetically Muslim mean to you? Again, about the I I think of my my dad. One of the things I mentioned at the politics and prose event was. The way that when it was prayer time, you know, he pulled out the prayer rug from our car trunk and prayed wherever he might be. 
I was just like, I'm not apologizing for the fact that God has asked me to do this, and I'm going to pray, right? And that. To and you me, mentioned a story that you do that when you're by the, you're in the Capitol with the fireworks on right. the 4th of July, and you're like, let me pull out my prayer rug because it happens exactly. to be my Exactly, and it's just, um, so the funny thing is I don't carry around a prayer rug, but I, I, but I make do. I will yeah. be like on the grass exactly. if I have to be. It could be pure, it could be pure. Yeah, and I think what was really funny is, and, and sort of, I guess, poignant is just the way that particular story, the way that it intersects the different themes of being an American and being a Muslim yes. and so Fourth of July, right? Right, exactly. Um, and you're proud to be an American right. on the Fourth of July. Right. It definitely yeah. gives you a sense of pride and excitement, and we do feel we're 100% American. Right. And yet, I don't see a contradiction between that moment and that pride um, and the fact that it's Maghreb time and I need to pray and I can be that unapologetic Muslim who is going to pray, right? I yeah. totally agree with that because I don't necessarily think they're mutually exclusive. Right. You don't have to choose between your two identities. Right. And I think, yeah, so going back to the question of, of mothering um, in the time period and with the issues that we face, it's really about how do I make sure that my kids grow up with that spiritual understanding of Islam and not the political. The political, but completely be, I mean, they're always going to have some element right. of the political, but be completely swallowed up by that. Right. Right. Because the politics is going to get tiring. And it's going right. to be something that you can move past. But the spiritual connection with God is something that I think is what stays with you. Right. Um, and what ultimately you will be judged on. Um, in life hereafter, it's, it's, the, it's the version of Islam that inspires good, right. right? Not the politics part of it. Right. Politics, I would I would argue, would actually deter you sometimes. Yeah, it's totally an inspiration of a division. I yes. would say, um, especially in today's society. And so that's the quest, right? It's always about like, and you know, in many ways, I'm grateful. It's interesting because they went to this Muslim camp earlier this summer, and uh, um, so my daughter, who just turned 12 was put in the 12 to 15 year old group, Oh my gosh. Okay. Which she was like, we're going to talk to him about Islamophobia. Exactly. <laughs> and she was like, I don't really want to talk about that No, right she's now. like, I've never actually, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> like, what, are, what are we talking about that yeah. right now? She's like, she's I, like I just want to crochet and paint and do exactly, fun stuff. Exactly, be a kid. Yeah. And, and it was interesting because she ultimately, I think, was, you know, made her, sort of opened her mind. And I told her, look, well, you're there to learn, just right. listen to other people's stories, even if you haven't experienced this. But it was interesting because one of her other friends who was her age was just like, I don't, I really don't want to do this. Like I just, she was just like refusing to deal really? with it. Um, and so, you know, and then I think that's, so that in some ways I'm kind of grateful that we do live in a blue state. Right. Um, and my daughter hasn't had to deal with some of the things that I know many Muslims, Muslim kids across the U.S. Yes. are dealing with. Um, and so she's sheltered and sort of protected in that way. But it's inevitable in some form or the other. It'll happen at some point. Yeah, and that's even if it's not, we all have stories. Yeah. I mean, that's the truth of it. And even if it's not straight hatred, it's the again the politicizing of her religion. Right. And I want her to be fundamentally rooted in the spiritual. I mean, that's what my parents did with me. I mean, my my childhood was before 9/11, but I think the the, re, the reason I was able to resist 9/11 and not let it erode my sense of self um, is because I had that rootedness and you had the foundation yeah you had, you had the foundation yeah because it seems like you had a, a, an amazing relationship with your dad mm -hmm. and how do you think that that shaped you your parents um, being first generation here in America how, how has that shaped you and how you parent your kids right now yeah I mean one thing I do know is that 
We don't have a precise blueprint. We as in parent people who are parenting right now right. because the world is so different right. in very fundamental ways when it comes to the experience of being a Muslim in America. There's that element. Um, there's the element of just I think we're more visible as Muslims now. We're under the microscope. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, as opposed to before, where a lot of, you know, we know that pre 9 11, people kind of knew we were there, but yeah. it wasn't like a big were, factor. Yeah, it wasn't like a, we weren't being scrutinized. And so I think that the only thing really that I can transplant from my own childhood and my parents' parenting to my current parenting is this idea of just an awareness of God. Right. Like, as long as you're sort of aware that He's there and He's watching you. Um, and that he is available to you to, to you know when you make dua and you're um, in this constant relationship with him. I think that is really the only thing that can take you through any sort of turbulence or up and downs of life. And I think I just want that to be very clearly um, instituted in my children. I know you're so crazy busy, and like I said, I really appreciate that you've taken this much time for me. But can you give us a little bit of hint of what's to come in the future? Because I know you're working on another project. Is that something that you can talk about right now, or is it still in the works? I do anticipate, hopefully, uh, another book in a couple years. Okay, inshallah. Um, we're very excited about <laughs> yeah. that. And um, it really kind of picks up where the current one leaves off. Um, in terms of this book is really kind of looking at what is the problem, right? And I'm more and the next stage is kind of like why and right. what are some of these really interesting factors that I don't think are being accounted for. I think we talk too much, or we have talked a lot about um, the hatred being rooted in fears of terrorism and possibly racism. Right. Um, in many cases, definitely racism. Um, a, a competition between Christianity and Islam. Exactly. Like, there's all kinds of different reasons that have been explored at depth, but I'm really interested in kind of looking at a couple of new factors, um, and specifically like this idea of I, that I kind of alluded to earlier with uh, this division that's becoming increasingly um, solidified in our society about you know the championing of marginalized societies versus championing of America. And the way that Muslims are kind of like taking, how they're perceived on one side of that debate. Exactly. Um, I think that there's a very strong sort of political polarization element to this in terms of conservatives' animosity toward Muslims. Right. And I'm really interested in exploring more of that. That'd be so great. Well, I'm super excited to finish the book because I'm in the middle of it right now. And for those of you um, that don't know where to get it, where can they buy the book right now? So it should be pretty much everywhere. It's on Amazon. Um, That's where I got it. I got it yeah. within 24 hours, everybody. So yeah. So Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, a lot of your local bookstores should have it. If you're ever in a place where you don't see it, go up and request it. Yes. Because that is what gets them to order it. So we're going to have a list in our show notes of all of your upcoming engagements. So if anybody wants to meet Asma in person, she's an amazing, amazing young lady. I'm so excited that I, I know you now a little bit more. Um, so please take a look for that. And thank you again so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Um, and inshallah, we're going to look for your next your next book. I'm super excited about it. Great. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.